What business model am I trying to grow with? What is the sophistication of the problem that I'm trying to solve? And with those two things in mind, that is really where you can start to simplify your marketing efforts because it's really, really difficult, in my opinion, if you're making less than like a million dollars a year to really successfully long-term and to sustain growth, trying to market to two different psychology of buyers. We became entrepreneurs because more than anything, we want freedom. We want to be in control of our own schedule, income, and life. But unfortunately, that isn't always the reality of being a business owner. I'm Gillian Perkins, and I'm on a mission to take back entrepreneurship for what it's supposed to be. In every episode, I'll share with you how to get the most out of every hour you work so that you can work less and earn more. Let's get to it. I am so excited to be sharing this interview with you today. In today's episode, I'm talking to Jerisha Hawk. Now, there are two things that I love about this interview and kind of two things the interview is about. The first thing is what I went into this interview looking for. I wanted to know what had happened with Jerisha's business because I know that a few years ago, she really simplified her business and her business took off from there shot off like a rocket. And I wanted to know what exactly that looked like, what simplifications she made that made such a big difference. And were there other things that she did that really contributed to that success? Or was it just the direct result of simplifying? So that was the first thing. And we definitely answered that question in this episode. And there are some great lessons to learn there. But the second thing that I am so excited about is that I always get so excited in the nerdiest way when people have really successful sales funnels and then they tell me all about exactly how their funnel works and they break the whole thing down. And we ended up doing that in this episode. Jerisha, she has a multi-million dollar business and that of course is being driven by her sales systems. And I got to find out firsthand exactly how her systems work and how they're converting her leads into customers and also how she's getting her leads in the first place. So I am beyond excited to be sharing that with you today. I think you're going to love this episode, love this interview. Definitely one of my favorites I've done for the podcast. So I'll stop talking and you can start listening in to my conversation with Jerisha. Hey there, Jerisha. Welcome to the show. Gillian, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. So I've heard some things about your business through the grapevine. I've heard that a few years ago, you really simplified things and that since then your business has grown a lot. So I'd love to kind of start at the end of that story or with the before and after. Like, Tell me what changed in your business after you simplified and, and then we'll talk about what that simplification process looked like. Yeah. Um, after simplifying, we really started uh, the business where we were focused on one core offer. Um, that's our coaching program that we still have today is called Leverage. And we cut everything else out from our business model. Um, and that was the year I went from like 300 and around $30,000 a year in revenue. We did close to $900,000 in the next calendar year. And then we did 1.5, 1.6 million the year after. Having that simplification, personally for me, it positioned us last year. We did over a million, we did a million dollars in profit in one calendar year in the business, which is like <laughs> balls to the walls, best thing ever. Um, but I think more importantly, even outside of what it did for me personally and in, in the business personally, about the level of clarification it gave my audience on what 
really cementing Jerisha Hawk and cementing a particular perception in their mind of what problem we solve. Um, it just removed so much confusion and any possible ambiguity or gray area that might had exist prior to. And I think that's really helped propel us and really, you know, kind of position me as an authority around curriculum-based premium price group coaching. Um, whereas before that might not have been as distinct as I think that my reputation and how people perceive me to be is today. Um, so outside of like what it's done for just my perception of my audience, my profit for me personally, also I think about the level of like the pace at which my existing clients have been able to get faster results has exponentially increased. Like I think we have maybe 70 to 80% of our clients earn a full return on investment when they enroll in our program within the first 30 to 60 days of being with us. And I'd say, I don't know, 99% of our clients easily earn, you know, three to five X return on investment over the course of a year of working with us. And I, I want to, I wanted to add that attribute of us simplifying our business model because it didn't help me just independently make more money, but it helped my clients get better results faster because uh, we were able to really focus our energy and attention on you know, really providing a top-notch, high-quality customer delivery for them because um, we had the energy, effort, and the capacity to, to pour into that. So those are some of the big, big, big wins of being able to simplify a business model that we've noticed um, almost immediately or in a very quick time frame after making the reductions. Well, it sounds like all good and not just good, but amazing results to get from simplifying. So let's go back now. What did your business look like a few years ago before the simplification process? I just started my business in 2017 is when 2016 is technically when I made like my first live stream video on Facebook and dabbled my toe into this world. 2017 was the year that I quit my corporate engineering salary and actually started the business. So from 2017 to the end of 2019 into 2020, I mean, I was like every, probably you listening to this, trying to figure out like, what is my offer? Who is my target client? What problem can I solve um, that can, and what's more of a sophisticated problem that I could solve based off the skill sets that I have so I can command a higher ticket price point. So I had done membership models. I had tried to do digital courses. I had tried to do private one-on-one -on -one coaching. I had done small group coaching. Like I had tried multiple offers in those first like 12 to 15 months of me being in business. And I started to pay attention. You know, I was doing digital products, eBooks, like any offer that you have seen any of the major, the big players in the space do. I was like trying to mimic what I saw other millionaires doing. And that's a really dangerous space to be in when you are, you know, just trying to make your first $10,000, your first $50,000. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause you're trying to mimic somebody in a totally different season of you. So I had for the first like 15 months, I was trying everything to figure out what would stick. And I started to recognize that it's time for me to flip the funnel. And what I mean by that is, this is maybe like a year and a half into me starting the business was lead with the, the biggest result that I can solve at the highest price point versus trying to make people buy small, smaller, lower mm -hmm. ticket offers before they ever see my more premium priced program and flipping yeah. the funnel really that that's what allowed me to replace my salary. Um, so then the business model was private one-on-one -on -one coaching in like three month containers, like $3,000 or more. And then I started my first like small, smaller group, like mastermind coaching program, hybrid type of situation that was around $9,000 for six months. Um, and those two things is what allowed me to get across the hundred grand mark. I think I made like, I don't know, $150,000 replaced my corporate salary, left my job. So then from there, I just kind of, 
I recognize that solving a more sophisticated problem at a more premium price point was what was going to make me the most profitability for the season of business that I was in, but also help clients get the best results. And because Mm -hmm. I didn't have a big audience either. So I'm like, I have to focus on value over volume. And um, after that, I transitioned out of my private one-on-one clients and purely started going into our core offer at the time, which was called Services That Sell. And that was like a a hybrid course coaching program around that $2,000 price point. Um, So I had that. And then I was still dabbling with like, that smaller group of clients at a higher ticket price point, like around that, you know, $9,000 mark, $10,000 mark. And so we did services that sell was what got me to the 300 grand mark. So that was like another year and a half in business of just selling that program and then having a higher ticket offer. Then we decommissioned services that sell, which some of my audience is still sending me DMs today saying, when are you going to bring it back or a variation <laughs> of it? Because that was my bread and butter. Um, mm-hmm. And but we recognized that we had an opportunity around the right before COVID happened, this was end of 2019. So before we knew all the craziness, um, I just saw an opportunity of like, where do we really add the most value in the marketplace? And it was really around more of like that premium pricing, curriculum-based coaching for people who were beyond just, you know, trying to get their very first client. Um, So we just doubled down on that and then cut off services that sell, cut off any like random things that we were doing and went all in on leverage. So it was like iterations of business models dependent on the season of business that we were in. So that zero to a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand to 300,000 and 300,000 plus. And that radical simplification um, from offers. And we can talk about operationally what that looked like too, um, gave me the focus both internally in the business operationally to make the strategic decisions to give us an infrastructure to really go all in on that. But it also created such immense clarity for my audience um, to really weed out like, who is Jerisha for? Who is she not for? Can she help me? Can she not help me? And we were just make we made it just so much easier for prospects to be able to make a decision, yes or no, on whether or not we were the best next step for them. So it was kind of iterations dependent on the season, which kind of progressed us there. Let me ask just a couple clarifying questions. One is that you mentioned curriculum-based coaching a couple times. So just to clarify, are you teaching people how to do curriculum-based coaching, or is that how you're describing the type of program that leverage is? Uh, A little bit of both. I mean, I'm not a curriculum designer and we're not doing Mm -hmm. like curriculum audits for our clients, but the, I think there's a very big distinction between, um, having a coach and having, and being following a curriculum that is leading Mm -hmm. to a particular outcome. And when I talk about curriculum based programs, I mean, programs that have a very distinguished and defined program promise. So there's a very clear end result. There's a very clear and tangible, measurable result in regards to what this program is going to help you deliver. And then the structure of that program through the client experience perspective, there is a structured roadmap that is not just teaching them the concepts of what they need to know, but it's also um, coaching them around the implementation and the deployment of that curriculum. Um, and I just, that's like, that's the model that we, we really lean in on. I'm an engineer by trade. So I think Mm -hmm. that's just how my brain works, but also it's really, I think in today's society in the coaching space, it's been just tremendous for clarity for clients when they're trying to achieve a specific goal. There are specific, it's a, when I say curriculum too, it's also, it's, it's a proven methodology. It's a -hmm. documentation of what has worked for you. Um, but done and taught in a way that can be deployed for somebody else to not just learn the concept, but to understand how do they apply it for their situation um, if they meet the qualifiers for whatever your program is. So 
When I say curriculum-based, I mean something that has a, a defined program promise, which is what we teach our clients how to craft for their offer. Um, and also like having more of that like graduate level, like graduate school level learning experience um, mm-hmm. where we are teaching our curriculum live to our clients, very similar like if you were to go into a college classroom. And there's, in addition to learning the material, you're also being supported in, in understanding how do I evaluate my effectiveness of what I just implemented so almost like a, a, a self-quality check or a self-diagnosis that you can kind of do at the critical phases of the curriculum. So we do have uh, part of our training and part of our teaching inside of our program is helping our clients structure their actual group program so that it can be more of a, of a linear step-by-step documentation of what's required to achieve a specific outcome, which is their program promise. And we dive heavy on program promise, especially too, as you start growing beyond one-on-one there's a very different dynamic of being able to coach somebody privately versus being able to teach in a group. And mm-hmm. um, understanding those nuances of now, I'm not just teaching from, you know, Jerisha to Gillian, but now I'm teaching, I have to teach this concept for maybe 10 people, 20 people to, to understand. And they all have different learning styles, different backgrounds of understanding. How do I lead different group, you know, group coaching call formats um, as I'm still developing and building out my curriculum and teaching that live. So we cover a lot of that in the program as well. But one thing that we've noticed for most of our clients, like, and again, this is part of our qualification process, is that they've taught before, they've coached before, they have some sort of uh, existing background with like, they, they, they know how to get the result, they have a track record of getting that result. Um, they normally just have a really difficult time of being able to define what is the I know how to deliver the value, but how do I now effectively articulate that value and how I've packaged the offer and how I've actually structured the offer? So mm-hmm. most of our clients don't need the handholding per se, or maybe need that extra support with like what's supposed to go in my curriculum. I don't know what I'm supposed to teach, but it's more so I have a lot to teach and I know that clients get results, but how do I organize it and construct it in a way where clients are getting results faster? Um, I'm removing all the dead weight. Uh, from my curriculum so that clients are only focused on doing the work that is essential to them getting the result that is promised versus like the nice to have extra material that might be good to know, but isn't isn't necessarily required for you to get the result. And that's where we focus a lot of our curriculum on outside of the marketing and sales. After selling courses myself and offering coaching myself over several years, I came to the same point where it was like, this needs to be a hybrid model. It needs to be a combination of the two. We need the structure of the curriculum to be able to ensure and you know be on the same page with the client as to what result we are striving for and to be systematic about it. And at the same time, there needs to be that personal component where it is customized and there's a coaching aspect to be able to guide people through it. So I love that. Um, So tell me a little bit more about the simplification process and what that looked like. What exactly did it involve? Was it just about cutting out all the programs except for the one? Was it easy? Was it hard? No, it was not easy. I feel like, you know, you you can get so attached to the idea of something, especially the idea of something that's already working, is successful, and is profitable. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, all of a lot of my mentors, both in the online space and just in greater business, like, uh, in other industries, they're like, you know, the, everybody always says the re- the riches are in the niches. And it's like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time we hear that, we know the power of simplification, we know the power of like essentialism, but the deployment of doing what we know is always can be difficult. 
Um, again, especially when you've had success with something, you've seen something work. Um, and it's like, wait a minute, I'm like going to be leaving money on the table. Cause I mean, it was mm-hmm. bringing in like over $300,000 a year for us. Like it wasn't, uh, you know, that could have been the business. Like we could have just stopped there, you know? Um, but so yeah, it's, it's, it was tough from like an inner dialogue type of thing. And I really had to anchor myself into magnifying the mission and magnifying, um, really, really leaning into what I've been spiritually and obediently called to do in this season. And it's like, Jerisha, like, yes, this is a way that you add value, but really where you are adding the most value at this particular time period in this season of your life. And also the season of like the, the, where your audience is, like you need to step up. Um, so that was some that, you know, it was my own inner stuff. I kind of had it to work through, but I think operationally, when it comes to simplification, there's a few things. This, this is a huge part of why clients choose to work with us is because they're either trying to launch a group coaching program and raise the price point of it, or they're maybe already like, you know, successful in their business making money, but they're, they're trying to simplify their offers and consolidate what it is that they're selling so that they can streamline their business so they can actually have more leverage internally from a coaching capacity perspective, but also operationally to be able to continue to grow. And I think there's always a few things that you have to simplify. And I had to do the same is one is deciding what business model am I actually trying to grow with for the season that I'm in. And where I've noticed in our online industry, there's a very clear line of demarcation for offers and programs that are $3,000 and less versus $3,000 and more. And I talk about this a lot of understanding market sophistication. It's not just about how much you want to sell it for, but it's really about understanding the psychology of the buyer and what is their private perception of offers that are priced at that particular point. And if you look in our industry, if, if you know, generally speaking, if you say, okay, this program is $1,500, you already have existing perception of what the expectation of that program is going to be. Versus you already have existing perception of, if I tell you a program is 6,000, like Mm -hmm. there's unwritten rules that people have or unwritten expectations. So when you understand that um, from a psychology perspective and how people are making buying decisions perspective, one of the first things I think, again, you probably won't make this decision until around um, 100 grand, definitely around $300,000 annually in revenue is like, what business model do I want to double down on to help me get from this season that I'm in? to the next financial season that I'm trying to grow into. And so that's one simplification is, do I want to go low ticket, high volume, where you need a a larger audience, more leads, um, but you're going to be selling at a lower ticket price point, probably solving a more entry-level problem? Or do I want to go high ticket, low volume, where I need less leads because I'm selling you know, at a higher ticket price point, but you're also probably solving a more sophisticated problem. So this can't be the you know, the, the $9,000 program for how to register your EIN and get your LLC. Like it has to be a more sophisticated problem. That's probably maybe step two or step three for whoever your ideal client is. So the business model is really important in regards to simplification. And again, from a buyer psychology, the reason why that was probably one of the most important simplification uh, steps I took in my journey, what we teach our clients as well is because it's not from a Gillian, what do you know how to do and what can you create and what can you sell? We know that you can help probably people at every stage of their journey because of your experience and your expertise. But it's really about where does my where do I want my marketing to be and what per what is the perception that I want to kind of carve out in in the audience of who's going to be buying from me. I could be talking to you if I share with you like here's uh I don't know, a Ford Fusion 
for $5,000, you need to buy a car. Ford Fusion for $5,000 and here's a Ferrari for $250, you're the same person. The perception that you take to, and the criteria that you use to make the buying decision on whether or not you get the Ford Fusion or the white Ferrari that's $250,000, like even though you're the same person, you need a vehicle, how you make that buying decision is totally different because of what is being purchased. So I think from a business model perspective outside of the offer, you have to really think about what is the sophistication of the marketing that I put out and what's the sophistication of buyer that I want to attract. And if I'm going low ticket, high volume, that's a very different buyer psychology and a very different way in which those individuals who are trying to purchase something at that price point are making a buying decision versus somebody who's trying to buy something at $3,000 or more. So I think from a, a simplification, it's like, okay, what business model am I trying to grow with? What is the sophistication of the problem that I'm trying to solve? And with those two things in mind, that is really where you can start to simplify your marketing efforts because it's really, really difficult, in my opinion, if you're making less than like a million dollars a year to really successfully long-term and to sustain growth, trying to market to two different psychology of buyers at the lower ticket end and at the higher ticket end. So those are like three attributes of simplification from a business model, marketing, and like a price perspective that change the game for me. And it's like, I will preach that to the till I turn blue in the face until my time no longer <laughs> is meant to do this uh, for other business owners. Because when you can make that decision, then now everything you do operationally, okay, what launch strategy should you be using? You need to pick one that aligns with the buyer psychology that you are trying to market and sell to. What delivery mechanism? What you know, operational system, what team support, like every other operational decision that you make in the business is dictated based off of those, uh, like the overarching strategy that you use from the, the business model perspective. And it, it changes the game because it just reduces confusion for you yourself as a business owner on what investments you need to make and where you need to focus your energy and time. And it also just opens up clarity and reduces confusion for your buyer. So they know, they know where to kind of place you in their brain around how to perceive you. So quick recap, those three attributes are business model. Are you doing high ticket, low volume? Or are you doing low ticket, high volume? And that needs to be aligned with the sophistication of the problem that you are solving. So whatever problem you're solving, that that is a really leading indicator on which business model route might make sense. And also how you want to grow from a lead perspective. If you're going to you know, continue growing organically, use paid advertising, or maybe do partnerships, but audience size kind of plays into that. And then the third aspect of simplification is um, the marketing strategy and the marketing approach that you deploy based off the other two decisions that you just made. So all those things have to be congruent, but you got to be willing to make the decision around each one of those attributes. So once you simplified, did you just simplify and then things blew up? I'm guessing you changed a few other things. You made some strategic moves to scale. What really grew your business after that simplification process? I think a lot of the times uh, when I when we, when we simplify or when I'm telling my clients they need to simplify, a lot of the time it's just us being more honest about what's already true that currently exists. So it's really interesting of like when I would just claim what is already true about the success or the results that I'm seeing in my business, it could feel like there was fast growth that happened afterwards. But really all I was doing was just like removing all the noise that I was creating versus just claiming what was true about already existed. And what I mean by that is like at where, like where was I the most profitable in my business? It was always with my higher ticket offers. It was always easier for me to sell a $9,000 program than a $900 program. They both require the same amount of effort. 
I'm like, where do I get my clients the best results? What problem or what promise um, do clients tend to continuously achieve over and over again? That was with my more sophisticated solutions that I was offering, not my digital course that a ton of people were buying it, but very few people maybe were finishing it or people were finishing it, but still not getting the result because no coaching was offered. Like where were the best results? Where was my highest profit margin? And what was the thing that people always aspired to learn from me about? And that was always on the higher upper echelon. So like one of the things I think that is um, a belief I would have recognized earlier and now that I know in hindsight is just like when you just claim what's already true about where you're seeing results, both for yourself and for your clients and where you add the most value in the marketplace, when you just own that, claim that, and then pro- then proclaim that publicly, like it's it's so much, it's so surprising how much smoother our path is because you've now cut a lot of the, the difficulty or the resistance in our journey is because of us um, trying to compare ourselves or mimic what we see somebody else doing that's not congruent. Like we're not, we're not being fully honest about what the truth is about what our business is and where we add the most value. Um, so I think that's something that like it wasn't, I mean, on paper, it, it like, dang, girl, you went from 300 grand to basically a million. And then the next year you did a million dollars profit. It was like up, up, up. If you look at my Stripe account, it looks a little bit more jagged, but it's still slow. It's still slowly increasing. So I think like that's maybe something that I noticed from like immediate results that happened right after or what that what that looked like. But practically what it looked like was us um, figuring out a communication plan. How are we about to decommission this program without a bunch of people being pissed off at us? And mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and what? how do we do that in a very ethical way? Um, how do we do that in a way that still allows us to maintain our integrity? And how do we also do that in a way that allows our clients and our audience who've been riding with us to continue the journey with us and to continue to be, to be an advocate on our behalf even after we make the change. So that was a, that was like maybe a three or four month project of internally figuring out what we were going to do, communicating things to our clients and really setting our existing clients up for success once that program decommissioned. Um, and then really also like garnering those clients and garnering our audience to be advocates and to be evangelists for us even after we decommissioned it. Because it's as change management and you do have to, because that program already existed, we already had maybe close to 500 clients in that program. We had to navigate that terrain um, and I think the other thing that we did from a, a public perspective is just, I know people, I get DMs all the time of like, hey, Jay, I'm about to make a pivot. How do I communicate this to my audience? And I think it's really important that my goal is not to create perfect content. My responsibility, and I think when you are the brand and um, you're, you know, you're the face of your company, it's how can you allow your, like, how can you just document your journey? And when you're documenting your journey, of course, you're going to be evolving as a business owner. Of course, you're evolving as a human. Like, of course, your offers are going to change. People just want to be included in that. So like, um, even if you go back on my Instagram, there was an Instagram live I did about like, you know, we're about to be the country club of the coaching industry. And my free content will be our church. You can always come. Uh, Our commitment is my free content and my free live streams. I want them to be better better quality and more informational than like lower ticket digital products. So like get it for free. That's our church. And, but when you work with us, be, be ready to experience a country club experience. And we just started to communicate those values publicly with our audience so that they could be a part of a part of the evolution versus like me only doing it all privately. So I think those are some things that we did to make those adjustments 
with ease, both internally for our existing client base that we had commitments to, in addition to our audience and how they might have been perceiving us from the outside. When you decommissioned services that sell, had you ever sold leverage before? Uh, We had. So we had sold leverage for three months. We did a beta round. Um, I'm a big believer that you you need to sell it before you create it. And you also need mm-hmm. to build it before you burn it. So in December of 2019, we did the first like um we we call it like an alpha launch. It was like the very it's proof of concept. Do people mm-hmm. is there demand for this? Do people want it? Can we deliver on the most minimum viable promise that we can deliver on? Uh, so we did a small cohort of six clients from August 19 to December of 19 to get proof of concept that we this is something viable. Um, and then we launched it officially. And again, we still controlled enrollment um, in January of 2020. And then we decommissioned services that sell in March of 2020. Um, we had like, you know, about maybe 10 clients, 12 clients that we had either had fully gone through the process or were in the in the midst of going through the process. Um, and we were able to like recognize demand and see, is this, you know, this is what I want to do um, based off of what I'm hearing that clients need. Is that actually true in the marketplace? So we did, we did like a six month. And during that six month period internally, we were also preparing for the change management, what would be required operationally, what we might need to do to still fulfill the promise that we had to our existing clients that were in STS, in addition to like how we're going to communicate that to the public. So you did these test runs of leverage and that proved to you that you could get the results for the clients and that the clients enjoyed the program and got the results they wanted. What made you confident of the demand for the new program? And also along the same lines that confident that it would surpass in terms of success the program you're already selling so successfully? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to the business model. Um, services that sell the time was priced at 2000 but we were still treating it like it was a premium price delivery container. And I'm like, I, I think I had enough data points just from like peers that I knew in the industry um, and just my experience myself of like, there is a clear line of demarcation around that $3,000 price point in regards to the type of marketing process you're going to use and the type of sales process that you're going to deploy to continue growing. So I, I already knew that like low ticket, high volume was not going to be the business model I was going to grow with. So there was like, there was already a decision that I don't know what offer will come next, but I know that this business model is not what will get me Jerisha Hawk to a million dollars plus. So I'm like, I don't want to, you know, run the gamut of trying to figure out paid advertising. I've always done really well organically and that's much more natural for me. And so the, I, so part of it was just making the decision on the model that we were going to grow with. Because once you make that decision, it opened up my mind to what else might have been available. But it also helped me claim what was already true about what had worked short term in my past. Because um, like that first time I launched a group program for $9,000 for six months, That was where I saw the biggest results. That is where I had the most money, but I had not yet built up a reputation around people knowing me for that. And I was, I didn't really market it publicly. It was something I kind of talked about like privately in DMs or like with past clients. Like I never really put much effort around it from a public perspective. So Mm -hmm. the decision, the decision around my business model and how I want it to like, what is the sophistication of the buyer that I want to attract and what is it, the marketing strategy and the sales approach I will need to deploy in order to achieve that? That's what like got me thinking differently about offers and how I would show up and support clients. 
but also like your metrics, your data is what gives you, uh, I think in my opinion, like validity and and how you inform your future decisions. And this is a huge Mm -hmm. thing that I teach my clients is you need to understand your conversion rates and you need to understand your sales cycle and you need to understand how to not only gather those metrics, but also how to review those metrics to inform your future decisions. And when I was looking at the, again, not just my conversion rates, but the first metric that I paid attention to was the success rate of the clients that I had in that alpha round, like that initial tester group. Um, and that tester group was four months. It was $6,000. And I looked at client feedback. Like my my client feedback has always influenced the frameworks in which I create and end up developing into offers. And I think when you can be a really, really good listener um, to what your audience's needs are, and you're willing to like let go of your ego for a little bit and really tro- show up to serve the needs that they are telling you that they have that are in alignment with the skill sets that you already possess, it's a win-win situation. Their feedback was, this needs to be longer than four months, and we need help beyond just doing the the, the first four months was just, just to launch. It wasn't how do you relaunch. It wasn't how do you refine your curriculum as you have cohorts. It didn't cover all the extra stuff beyond the launch. And they were like, no, we want all of it. Like show us how to relaunch, show us how to um, repurpose our marketing content after we've launched, show us how to refine our curriculum as clients go through it. So we turned it into a 12 month program. We raised the price point. We went back out to market and we looked at conversion rates. Like what were the conversion rates And I paid attention to what are the objections that we are getting and also really understanding what are my qualifications. And I think sometimes when people are launching new offers, they they don't stick. I don't want to say they don't stick with it long enough, but they don't. A lot of the time people don't know what data points to look at to to validate whether or not they should continue. Because sometimes you might be getting a ton of sales objections from unqualified prospects. And if you don't understand how to maybe properly qualify, you might be taking feedback from people who were never meant to buy this offer in the first place and then internalizing that and then making decisions off of it. And those are invalid data points. You know, being an engineer, like I treat my business like uh, like when I was in college in those lab classes, like everything is an experiment. What's a hypothesis? What are your data points? Go do the test measure the data points against what your expectations were, adjust as needed. Like, so when you really, when I started paying attention to the right data points on, okay, who are my qualified leads? What are the conversion rates of my qualified leads? And what is the success rate of my qualified leads? That's what gave me a lot of internal confidence. Um, And also like the decision that I can't keep, like I'm unwilling to do what's required to keep growing with a high volume business model based off of what I knew was necessary to make that work. It was just like, it is not for me. Like, it's just, it was not for me. The webinars, the complicated funnels, I feel like the hoops and ladders that many of us are taught to, you know, make prospects and audiences jump through to buy stuff from us. It just never and that never really settled well with me or how I show up and serve clients. So those two things are, I hope I answered the question there, but like those are the two big things. <laughs> well, it leads perfectly into my next question, which is you mentioned earlier on the concept of flipping the funnel. And you mentioned how what we often see and what we're often taught is to have this long funnel that starts with lower price products and gradually leads people up gradually leads uh, prospects that become customers up to higher priced products and that you have chosen to flip this and lead with your highest price, highest value offer. 
So I'm curious what your funnel looks like with that model. What does your marketing and sales strategy look like? Man, this is this is what we teach clients. We do live stream videos. We we've constructed something that we call um, the lean launch method. That's like my proprietary process using live stream videos and really making sure the messaging within those live stream videos is addressing uh, the three core phases of a buyer psychology that need to be hit. People watch live videos. They you know visit your application play page and apply to your program. You have a sales conversation either through direct message or text-based or a phone call. You enroll them in the program. That is the entire, we call it the champagne closer method. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like selling a high-end real estate. All you need to do is just bring the home buyer there and pop a bottle. The house kind of sells itself. And that's uh -huh. really our approach. It's um, how are we really addressing objections and shifting beliefs in the marketing itself well before somebody even ever starts a sales conversation how are we, our application process is twofold. It's not only for us to qualify the lead, but for the lead to self-qualify themselves. Because um, our job in our application process and in our sales process is really just to help the prospect make a decision. My goal is not to get to yet, to get a yes every time. Um, my goal is just, did you say yes or did you say no? And are you clear on what your decision is? And then our sales process is really, um, really having like um, more of an ethical sales process and not removing the human being from the decision-making. Like I think sometimes in the online space, we want to pacify everything. And when you're dealing with a more sophisticated buyer, solving a more sophisticated problem at a more premium price point, like imagine if you were going to go, I don't know, buy anything that's on the higher upper echelon. Like if you're going to go buy a pair of red bottom shoes, you're definitely going to go to Neiman's or Saks and try that shoe on before you, you know, go online and purchase it. If you're going to go buy a high-end vehicle, if you're going to go buy a luxury house, like if you're going to buy anything premium, you're going to have some sort of touch points. So we just like to maintain that humanity in it. Um, either that's through a sales conversation, there's through some sort of sales conversation versus somebody making a decision purely based off of a checkout page uh, without any human interaction. So it's either through sales calls or through direct message. Those are the two methods that we teach clients. They use a combination or they'll do one or the other, but that's the whole process. So the process is just a uh, live video, you know, eventually you'll start to repurpose that content onto social media platforms with those live videos and your marketing is really addressing objections, shifting beliefs, really priming the person to be ready to make a buying decision from a psychology perspective. Uh, have them apply, have a sales conversation through a call or DM, um, enroll them into making a decision, they pay and then they onboard. So it's no emails. It's no complicated webinars. It's, it's, it's no like deadline funnel. There's no false scarcity. We don't do any of the, the heavy lifting. We're like, what is the simplest way that you can address the needs that your buyer needs to understand to make a decision? And what's the simplest way that you can have a conversation with them? If you can master that, then we can, then you can layer on other attributes to amplify it. But we want to make sure that you have that solid. And that's still how we sell to this day. It's through primarily video based marketing whether it's a sales call or a DM conversation and enroll them into their decision and process payment. That is the whole process. Well, thanks for breaking it down. It's beautifully simple and I love that. And just one little point of clarification. Do you do open close enrollment a few times a year or is it always open? We've done both. Um, and I think it just, what you do just, just depends on the season that you're in, how developed and defined your curriculum is and what your capacity is operationally. 
Um, I did an episode on like evergreen enrollment versus launch-based enrollment on my podcast not too long ago. But this is what we talk about with our clients all the time. I think a lot of the time people are like egging and, and dying for evergreen enrollment when in actuality what they really desire is just consistent monthly recurring revenue. And there's, a, mm-hmm. there's other ways to get monthly recurring revenue without also having to do evergreen enrollment. Um, mm-hmm. And I think evergreen enrollment done prematurely can be very damaging to your business if you don't have the capacity to function in every one of the departments at all times uh, in your business. Like when you're evergreen enrollment, you're always marketing, you're always selling, you're always onboarding, you're always delivering, and you're always fixing whatever might be broken on the back end. Um, versus launch-based enrollment, for a period you might be marketing and selling, and then for a period your energy and focus might shift to like client delivery and operational aspects, while maybe like marketing is still kind of going to build the wait list or build demand. So we've done both. We've had seasons where we've done purely launch-based enrollment. We've had seasons where we did purely evergreen. People could enroll at any point in time. Kind of where we're at now is like a hybrid, <laughs> I guess. It's like um, we do enrollment based off of capacity and we know operationally how many new clients we can handle before we need to adjust something operationally on the back end. So we like to enroll now in, in small cohorts, um, meaning that like we'll have a small group of people join around the same start time. And we just control the amount of new people that join at any given time. And then just based off of, again, what we know that we can handle capacity-wise operationally, that will dictate and determine how many open client spots we give. So sometimes we might be enrolling clients every month um, at particular times during that month, or we might skip a couple of months just depending on what's happening operationally. Because during the first 90 days that we enroll clients, we watch them like a hawk. Um, Because we want them to finish their very first lean launch in those first 90 days. Um, And that's because of what I shared with you earlier, 70 to 80% of clients who do that get a full return on investment for the entire year within those first few months. So we we just want to make sure we just we now we I understand I'm not uh, naive as much as I was before (laughs) about just bring them all in. Like, let's all do it. It's like, (laughs) hold on, girl. Hold on. How many clients can you handle before something breaks or something about your process needs to change? And um, now I understand those those levers. So we're kind of in like a hybrid situation where we enroll and we have the capacity to do so. um, And we try to enroll clients you know, in small clusters at specific times so that like if you were to join tomorrow, you're joining with three or four other people who are also going to be moving at a similar pace as you. So you can feel included community wise. Like there's other people who are literally exactly where I'm at. In addition to being introduced to a group where we have, you know, we have some clients who are still in our community who've been with us for more than three years. So you get kind of the best of both worlds. Well, Jerisha, thank you so much for everything that you have shared with us today. This has been incredibly insightful and interesting, and I really appreciate your transparency. And there's just there was so much gold in this episode to learn from. I think for people at really any stage of the game, whether they're getting started and they're just looking off into the future of like, where am I going someday? Or if maybe they're at a point where they need to make a pivot or simplify their business, or they need to shift their business model to offer for a more premium product. So thank you so much. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Work Less, Earn More. 
Now, here's what I want you to do next. Take a screenshot of this episode you're listening to right now and share it out on your Instagram stories. And when you do, make sure you tag me at Gillian Z Perkins so I can see you're listening. Sharing on stories is going to help more people find this podcast so they too can learn how to build their business in a way that allows them to work less and earn more. And if you really love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts right now and leave Work Less, Earn More a review to give it a boost and help even more people find it. Okay, let's wrap this up. I'm Gillian Perkins, and until next week, stay focused and take action. Take action.